0: The Israelites come to Samuel and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel, he's kind of ticked off and he goes to consult with God. And God says, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if a king is what they want, give them one. And so we're introduced to the figure of Saul. Now Saul is a tragic figure because he begins full of promise. He's tall, he's good looking, he's a perfect candidate for a king, but he has deep character flaws. He's dishonest, he lacks integrity, and he seems incapable of acknowledging his own mistakes. And so these flaws become his downfall. He wins some battles at the beginning, but his flaws run so deep, he eventually disqualifies himself by blatantly disobeying God's commands. And so the aging Samuel confronts Saul and Israel. He had warned the people that they would only benefit from a king who's humble and faithful to God. Otherwise, the kings of Israel will bring ruin. So he informs Saul that God is going to raise up a new king to replace him. And so Saul's downfall begins, as God at the same time is working behind the scenes to raise up that new king. It's an insignificant shepherd boy named David. He's the least likely candidate to be king, but the famous story of David and Goliath shows that God's choice of David is not based on his family status, but simply on his radical and humble trust in the God of Israel.
1: Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, I promised you after three weeks of Judges, I would give you something more uplifting and fun. And here we go. David and Goliath. It's a great, fun story. We all know it. You're welcome. Um, this story kind of picks up you know, it's right after Samuel has anointed David as king, and it seems like it's kind of out of order a little bit because, you know, you read chapter sixteen and you have David is anointed as king, and then actually is sort of taken into Saul's service and he's working in his household, and then in chapter seventeen it's like they don't know each other. And part of what's happening is that um, you know, if you if you listen to our, our Bible study podcast the past couple of weeks, one of the things I told you is that first and second Samuel in the Hebrew are one book, and they're actually they've, what they've done is they've taken two different sources, two completely different accounts of all of these events, and they've kind of just mashed them together. And so they're they're all jumbled up, and so sometimes you're going to have events that don't really seem like they fit. It seems like they're out of order a bit, and then you might also just go from one chapter to the next, and you get like completely different perspectives on what's happening from one to the other, because you've got two sources written in two different time periods, telling the same story from different angles, and trying to teach you different things. And it's important to remember when you read the history books in the Bible, these are not books that are trying to tell you exactly what happened as it happened. They are trying to tell you what God was doing while you were watching all this happening. So this is the theological history of Israel, not not always necessarily the exact perfect literal history. They're explaining what God is up to. So sometimes they rearrange events on purpose to better explain stuff. And in this case, they want you to know, right, God has already picked David as Saul's successor. It sets the background for this story. So the Philistines have invaded Israel, right? They are in the territory of Israel. And now Saul is gathering his army to go and, and meet them. So in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes-Demim between Soko and Nezekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft it was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His spear bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So it gives you Goliath's height is six cubits in his span, which works out to about nine feet nine inches tall, Uh, and if that sounds unbelievable, it's because it is. So the oldest manuscripts that we have actually put his height much lower. Uh, so what's happened is someone has gone back in later and amped up the drama a bit by, by fudging the numbers. Saul's probably about my height. I mean, Goliath's probably about my height, right? He's, he's a little over six feet tall. Which doesn't sound all that impressive until you realize that the average Israelite man in this day and age is about five foot four. So even if he's my height, he is absolutely a giant to them. And I told you a couple weeks ago, the Philistines are not native to this area. They're, they're colonists. They've come from somewhere around Greece or the island of Crete, and they've settled on the coast of Israel. So it makes perfect sense. You know, we, we forget with, with the way that nations work now that at one point, nations were like ethnic groups. So all your people looked alike and were of a similar size, and there wasn't a whole lot of intermixing. So it was very common, actually, to have one nation of people who were fairly short and another nation of people who were fairly tall. And then You factor in where they live on top of that, right? The Philistines live in the coastal plain. It's really fertile. They've got tons of food. There's a really good chance that Goliath is not an unusual Philistine. There's a really good chance, actually, that most of the Philistines are about six foot taller or higher. The Israelites could very well be staring down an army of what they think of as giants. And the rest of the story will tell you that David goes and kills a bunch more giants when he fights off the Philistines later on. So, at the very least, he's not uncommon. There are multiple people facing them down across that valley who looked to them like giants. And right right before this, in chapters 13 and 15, the prophet Samuel is very clear to the people that, that Saul has lost God's favor. So it makes sense, right? Here they are, they've lost faith in the king who's leading them and they're staring down an army of giants and now here's this one who's coming out and saying, look, I'll fight any one of you and they are terrified. Meanwhile, David is not there. Right? David's far too young, apparently, to be fighting in the battle, which means he might well be as young as like 11 or 12 at this point. He could be a very young man. And, and all his brothers are, are there though, because the way that armies work in the ancient world is they're not standing armies, these aren't professional soldiers. When it's time for battle, you go up and call up all the men that you can find, and they all grab whatever weapons they have at hand, and usually they've, they've prepared for that. And you gather them together. There's no such thing really as a professional soldier. It's just the farmers who have the time to come fight the battle. So David's older brothers are all standing in the battle line, and David is sent. He's like the water boy. Okay? He's, go bring refreshments to your brothers in the field and go and and do that. And so that's when David enters into the story here in verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse, his father, had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. Which I'm sure did not annoy them in the slightest, right? Go away, David, we're fighting a battle. Jeez. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Now, how far would you go to get out of paying taxes, right? That's pretty tempting. David asked the men standing near him, "What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God?" Which I'm sure his brothers loved hearing from their little twelve-year-old brother. Right? Imagine you're one of the soldiers standing there, like contemplating what it would be like to fight that giant over there, and here's this twelve-year-old like, "Aren't you going to do something? (laughs) What's wrong, scaredy pants?" Right? He's a 12-year-old. You know he had that kind of attitude in him. And so as, as he's you know, asking all these soldiers, all these guys dressed up for battle, why aren't you fighting this guy? Word gets back to Saul that there's some little 12-year-old shepherd boy annoying all his soldiers on the, on the battle line. And so naturally he, he asked to have him brought to him. And, and this is how that goes in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. Right? Now, just Picture it, right? 12-year-old boy, look, it's fine. I'll go fight him. It's okay. You guys can all go home. I've got this. Right? And we all know 12-year-old boys who would actually say things like that, don't we? Right? It's not out of character. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now imagine that, right? I've I've killed lions and bears. This guy's in no trouble. I can do that. (laughs) It's got to be the coolest single line in the entire Bible, right? All he needs, all you need now is to have him like nonchalantly taking off his sunglasses. You know, I've killed lions and bears. This is guy's... And and then imagine Saul for a minute, right? Here's Saul saying to this little boy, well, alright, I guess that convinced me. You can go fight the man. This is this is fine, right? You see why Saul has lost favor with God by now. Um, and then there's this great scene that follows where he's trying to put his armor on David and he puts the armor on and he, puts, he straps his sword around the waist and David's like tripping over the sword because it's too long and he can't handle the weight of the armor and all of these red flags are popping up that suggest maybe someone else ought to go and do the fighting. And David says, I can't wear this armor. I can't even carry it. Let me just go out like I am. And again, Saul says, well, okay, that makes sense. You go on ahead and fight your battle. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. I mean, this is the underdog story to top all underdog stories, right? I mean, the name of the story itself is synonymous with underdog. We, we literally use it to describe that kind of a scenario. And so it's famous. And, and, and we really like to focus especially on the fact that he faced him down with just a sling and a stone. There's song lyrics about it, right? Having the courage to stand before a giant with just a sling and a stone but what if we've got it wrong and david is not the underdog we think he is did you know that the rock launched by one of those things hits with the same force as a 45 caliber bullet and and someone like david who's been using it probably every day of his life since he was a, a little boy they can hit their target with near perfect accuracy every time my friends david cheated He cheated. He brought a gun to a knife fight. <laughs> From the moment he picks up the rock, there's no way he's going to lose this fight. He's already won it. The whole point of these, of these like, champion fights in the ancient world is that the idea is you get your best fighter, we'll get our best fighter, they'll meet on even terms in the middle, and that's how we'll settle this. We'll minimize the bloodshed, right? But it'll be a fair match, your best guy against our best guy. David does not meet him on even terms. Because David understands something that all the people of Israel have forgotten. He understands that it's not the Israelites who are the underdogs that day. And to some extent, even the Philistines realize this, right? Because if you recall, I, I told you before, the Philistines use chariots. That's their big military advantage. They have lots and lots of chariots. Those only work on flat ground. They're in the hill country. They have given up their one big advantage in battle— And and throughout the history of Israel, almost every time the Philistines move into the hill country to fight the Israelites on their home turf, they lose. Sending out Goliath is not some sort of power play. It's like a really sneaky tactic to try and win a battle they think they're otherwise going to lose. They know they are the underdog. The Israelites are the only ones who don't realize it yet. And David, David recognizes that what's really going on is it's not Israel versus the Philistines. It is the Philistines versus God himself. David doesn't meet Goliath on even terms because there are no even terms. It can't be done in that kind of a showdown. Goliath didn't just challenge Saul and the Israelites. He's challenging the God of Israel. And the only response that he can get is overwhelming force. God wins every time. God is never an underdog, and therefore God's people are never underdogs. So all these Israelite soldiers are afraid that if they try and go out there and face Goliath one-on-one, they won't measure up. They won't be able to meet him on even terms, and they'll lose. But they've forgotten who it is who's really doing the fighting here. And it is, it is not a coincidence that Goliath walks out onto that battlefield holding all of the things that in the ancient world would signify wealth and power and success and strength. right? He's got all the weapons, he's got all the armor, he's got the great size, and here comes the scrawny little shepherd boy, representing all the things that speak of poverty and weakness. He's the youngest son of an insignificant family. He spends his days watching the sheep, and for all the, the, the deadliness of the sling he uses, it's a peasant's weapon. No one respects it. God doesn't just win the battle. He will do it in ways that subvert all your expectations of what it means to be powerful and strong and successful. All the things that the world believes signify strength and authority and power mean nothing to our God. Goliath should have been shaking in his armor once David picked up that sling. Everyone in the ancient world knew the the power of that weapon. But all he can see is the scrawny little shepherd boy standing in front of him while he's holding his spear and his armor. And it's his arrogance and his foolishness that cause him to underestimate what's standing in front of him. And it's also significant, by the way, that Saul didn't even try to go out and fight this guy, because if you recall, if you're reading along in our Bible reading plan, when they pick Saul as king, they describe him literally as standing head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. Now, if the average man in Israel is five foot four, and if Goliath is my height, and Saul stands head and shoulders above all of them, he's not that far off Goliath in size. If there's anyone in Israel's army who should have taken the field to face him down, it's the king. It's the one who's bigger than all of them, who has built his entire reputation as their king on his prowess in battle. And he's the one hiding behind a line of soldiers, sending a 12-year-old to go fight his battles for him. Because he's forgotten who he is there to serve. He's forgotten the simple truth that as long as they are fighting on God's side, they have already won. God does not lose. God has won, God is winning, and God will win. There is nothing and no one who can stop our God. The world does not have to be a scary place for us. It doesn't mean you can't be concerned about things that happen, but but the sorts of things that cause everyone else to panic or that grip them in fear, they don't have to control us or rule us in that same way because we know that in the end, our God wins. He's defeated death itself. If you want to tie this into current events, we can look at men like Vladimir Putin and say they've already lost because no matter what he does, one day he too will bow before Christ the King in submission. It's a foregone conclusion. He's lost. He just doesn't know it yet. The Bible teaches us that God is already the Lord of all creation. He has already won. And yet so often we are still living in fear. And it's an election year, so it's going to get worse. And I know because I see it every two years. We get into October November and all the people start panicking, right? We don't have to do that because we know who is really in charge. You could, you could take the, the, the weapons and the armor that Goliath have and replace them with the things that we look at as signs of strength and success and power. You could look at someone's bank account or the clothes they wear or the nice car they drive or the big house they have or the prestigious job they have. None of it means anything before God. You can look at all the political authority someone might have and it's meaningless compared to God. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to be afraid of where we think the world is going, what direction we think it's heading. We don't have to worry about it. It doesn't mean that we should be detached and not care. It means we should understand that God has already won. Christ is already king. Our job is not to be detached from the world. Our job is very much to be bringing his kingdom to exist in the world as we live in it but we should not be afraid of the darkness. We should not be afraid of the challenges that look insurmountable. Jesus himself tells us, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. He's already done it. God has overcome, which means the only people who have anything to fear are the ones trying to stand in his way. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.